I'm your host, Amber Hollingsworth. I'm an addiction specialist, and I've been helping people beat addiction for more than 20 years now. This podcast is for people who want to know how to get through to an addicted loved one, for people who are tired of being told that they just need to stand back and wait for their loved one to decide to do something about it. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how to outsmart addiction and put this whole mess behind you for good. You know your addicted loved one needs some help and you wish they would agree to go to counseling. But every time the conversation comes up, the whole thing goes sideways. They have about a million roadblocks and excuses and reasons why they shouldn't, don't need to, don't want to go to counseling. You're in luck if this sounds familiar because today I'm going to talk to you about exactly what to say, like what words to use and everything when you run into these really common roadblocks that your loved one throws at you. Now, I've got a list of six of them here. These are like the really common ones that I hear all the time. But if you're watching live and you're thinking of a roadblock that you've heard, throw it in the chat and and maybe we'll brainstorm together about how to maybe overcome that roadblock because I'm sure there are some that some like really special unique ones that I'm missing out on. And I I can't tell you I can overcome every roadblock, but I'll I'll do my best to tell you what I would say in that situation. Now, before I tell you these sort of six scenarios and each way of having the conversation goes with a different roadblock. I want to say this because this is more important than anything else. You have to wait for the right moment to say this or have this conversation. And if your loved one isn't at the right point to go to counseling, you actually might make it worse to get them to go to counseling. And I actually have a video about why that is. Counseling can make addiction worse if it's not either the right time or it's not with the right person or it's not set up properly. So make sure you watch that video. I will link it up here for you at the end. I think the thumbnail or something is called something like why you should stop telling your addicted loved one to go to counseling. And it's not that counseling can't ever help, but you need to have the situation set up right. So that will help you with that. And if you're wondering how to even get them to the point where you can even have this conversation, then there's a whole playlist of videos about how to get someone motivated to make a change, motivated to take steps towards recovery. We have a whole invisible intervention program. We have tons of resources for you on how to get your loved one there. But when you finally get to the moment, I call them like little moments of clarity or moments of willingness where you can see that okay, we have a window here. It's like I've been waiting for this. I've been like working all the steps and now it's finally here and you're like what do I say? I want you to have a guideline on what to say. You may even want to take some notes on this and feel free to customize these suggestions to language that kind of works for you and you the dynamic best between you and your loved one. But you can take these words, I would say, and you can make them sound more like you and it's going to help you overcome these six big main objections that you're likely to run into. Now, we'll start with a really common basic one, which is, I don't believe in counseling. Anybody on here have a loved one that either says or that they don't believe in counseling? I'm not talking to no counselor about my business. What is that? That's wooey-hooey or that's for crazy people. A lot of people have a bunch of stigma and bad imagery in their head about the idea of even talking to counselor, and it just seems foreign or dumb. Even though I'm a counselor, it's weird that I'm a counselor because the idea of talking to a counselor, I don't even know how I thought of being a counselor. Actually, I didn't think of being a counselor. I was a teacher and I thought I'd be a school counselor. I'd heard of a school counselor, but I really 
didn't know anything about what a therapist was. That was just not a thing in my family. That was not a concept. I can relate to that idea of do what, Doctor Who, about my personal business. I get it, actually, because that would have been the case in the family. You guys know I'm from the Tennessee in the little tiny town, not even close to a big town, like really small, isolated town. This idea of I don't believe in counseling, this is a really common thing. One of the ways that you can avoid and get around this one sometimes is you can say, you can either agree and you can say, yeah, I don't know, like that might be just like a bunch of crap. Who knows? Let's try it. You can, and you can say or whatever. So you can give them this you're leaving the door open, and a lot of these are going to be like this. So you're going to leave the door open for them to have that objection. If they have an objection and you start to push on it really hard and say, I don't know, you start to defend it. Well, they're trained for this and they're that. Blah, blah. They're just going to like cling on to that objection even harder. So I don't want you to do that. When someone gives you an objection, if there's any amount of validity to it, then at least validate the valid part. You don't have to do the whole thing, but you can say, I can see where you're coming from with that. And honestly, there's some truth in that. What Counseling, that's weird. The other thing you can do is don't use the really common phrases that I know most of you use. Don't use the phrase like, I want you to get some help. Just that word right there, help, that just feels icky sometimes for people. Like, oh God, here we go again. You know, you're going to get the eye roll response. And don't say you need to get some treatment. Use a different word, if at all possible. I was talking to someone this week and we came up with the idea of using the word, hey, let's get some advice on this issue from someone who like knows something about it. Because it doesn't hit that same trigger point is when you say the word treatment, when you say that one, you get the shutdown. Like what you're going to get when you say that word is absolutely not. Because at this point, the garage door is slamming down because they don't want to do that. If you say the word get help, you're going to get the eye roll. Like, oh my God, really? Here we go again. So use a different word, <laughs> something else. And you know your loved one best and find a way to, to couch it, frame it. That's not so off-putting to them. Now, the second... This second roadblock, a really common roadblock that you're probably going to run into, is this really happens when you're dealing with someone who's like a really stubborn person who you can't force into anything. <laughs> I know everyone hates to be forced into things. Everyone likes to have control and independence and autonomy. But some people are just like really hard-headed. And even if they wanted to do it, but you told them they had to do it or needed to do it, then they really are not going to do it because you said that. When you're dealing with that person, then you never want to go at it directly and you want to you don't want to push you want to gently open the door and invite them if they feel like it <laughs> because they have this like real hair trigger on you can't make me put a hands up emoji in the comments or in the chat if you're a person or someone and you're thinking of them you're like oh yeah that's my person they're like that they're just stubborn headed and they literally say no just because you suggested it if it's if you're dealing with that kind of person and they start throwing up objections at you, then just validate their reasonable objections. And so some of those objections could be about those people don't know what they're talking about. You, you want to like listen to those objections and we'll address the money one specifically in just a second because it is such a common one, but just listen to what they have to say and then say, you could be right. Like you could totally be right. Like it might just be like a waste of time. This is where you want to say... Let's just give it a try, and if it's terrible, forget about it. If it's terrible, you don't have to do it. Don't say forget about it. But if it's terrible, you don't have to do it. And then that leads me into 
the next statement that you can say is once you've given them that out, you've acknowledged their points, the ones that you can acknowledge in good faith, then if you have somebody specifically, this also works if they really don't like authority, then you want to always give them that exit door. And one way to do that is let's get you an appointment with a couple, two or three different people, and you decide who you like. Or another way to do that is to say, yeah, why don't you go try it out like three times, give it a fair shot, and if you still don't like it, they will do something else. We used to use that one a lot. Um, families that would call and they say, I really want my loved one to see you, but they just won't do it. Or sometimes the person would need to be like an intensive outpatient. And we would say to them, we'd say, listen, get your loved one to agree to come three times. And if they hate it, they don't have to come back. Because I know, we know, Campbell, Kim and I, all of us know, if you don't like us by three times, if we don't have you engaged, we're not going to get you. We're, we're pretty decent at it. And most addiction counselors, they have to develop a skill to build rapport with people because the people that come to see us don't want to come see us. So we have to get good at this. And if I've not won you over at least a little bit, I'm not saying like fixed you or changed you by three sessions, but I'm just saying like if by three sessions that person does not come home and say, and you say, how was it? If they say it wasn't awful, that's a win. Because that's like a, it was all right, <laughs> but they don't want to say that. But that's the goal is to get them to either try two or three and see who they like. That makes people feel like they have options and they're not forced. And the three times, see if you'll go to that group, that counselor, that program, whatever, three times. It feels like, all right, I can do three times. That's not that big a deal. It's like three one-hour sessions. I can do that. And they'll, a lot of times they'll concede to that. And like I said, by the time they go three times... If you've got them with a good match for them, then they'll be like, well, this isn't terrible. I might as well come back. They might be thinking this probably won't help, but this will make my wife or my mom happy. I'll just do it. It's not that terrible. That's fine. That's a good starting place if you ask me. The other one, now you don't usually get this objection necessarily if it's your kid, but you probably might get this one if it's your spouse, is a, why do you want to go pay a bunch of money? They'll throw a money objection up. Now, sometimes a kid will do that just because they know that the parent cares about the money. They don't really care about the money, but they know it's your button. So they throw that out there because they think it might be a good one and get you. So the thing about money is it can be expensive to go and see a counselor. And what feels really expensive about it is like, oh, we pay what? For an hour of talking to someone's time? And so this is some behind the scenes. I don't necessarily want you to say this exactly this way, but I just want you to understand this. And then that way you can figure out how to say it to them. But really, when you pay to see a counselor, you're not paying for their one hour. You're paying for their years of experience. You're paying for the fact that they have an entire graduate degree. Yes, you're speaking to them for an hour, but what that person can give you in one hour is more than you can get from talking. If you're talking to somebody who's like me and dealt with it 20 years, you're going to get so much value, you so much more better advice and good help in one hour. So not thinking of it like I'm paying X amount of dollars for hour. It's I'm paying X amount of dollars to expedite the process. That's the way I view it. We can fumble along and we can try to figure this out. And when it comes to addiction recovery, that's probably going to cost you a lot more money, a lot more than going to see some counselor somewhere. So when you think of it that way and you explain it as we just want to expedite the process so we don't have to try and fail. We don't have to, you don't have to say this part, but we don't have to pay for DUIs and lawyers and a divorce and another failed semester of college or all of those things. And so if you can get them to view it 
differently. If it's not your spouse and they're not involved in the money, I wouldn't bring up the money at all because you're literally just handing them some kind of like excuse or reasons. But sometimes that can definitely be a roadblock. Another one you can run into is I've tried that and it doesn't work. Have you guys run into that? I've done that before. I've been to treatment. I've talked to counselors. It's not helped. And the way you deal with this is to investigate into it further. That's the way I deal with it anyways, with clients in session. One of the first questions I ask within the first five or 10 minutes is usually, have you ever been to treatment or seen a counselor or like groups or anything about this before? Because I want to get a sense of what their past is. And then I'll say, was it helpful or not helpful? Because the first thing I've got to overcome is this frame of mind they're coming into me with. If they've not done it before, then they're probably nervous and a little like unsure and not knowing what to do and a little intimidated or scared by the process. So if that's the case, then I want to address that with the person and help them feel like, oh, this is what happens and guide them through it so they don't feel like what's about to happen. <laughs> Am I going to have to lay on the couch, talk about my dreams, like what's going to happen? So talking through that. But a lot of times when I see people, they have had some experience, some of them a little bit, and some of them a lot of experience with talking to people in the past. And then if I can get a sense really quickly over whether they viewed that as helpful or not helpful, that's a really good piece of information that I can then work with to get to the next level. Because usually what they'll say is something like blanket, right? Especially what they're going to say to you as a family member. I did that. It didn't work. When in reality, it was probably a little mixed and gray. And you can say, yeah, you have given it a, a fair try before. What was that like? So if they throw you that roadblock, just start to, if they let you just dig in there and open up some of those little pieces and boxes and find out. Because what you'll find out if you ask some more questions is they'll say, well, I didn't really want to see that person anyway, and I wasn't going to let it work. And then they'll acknowledge to you, but mostly to themselves, that it didn't work because they didn't want it to work. Or they'll say, well, actually, I did get sober for a while. It worked for a while. I'll say, okay, so it like worked for a while but then it wore off. They'll start to see their past experiences, usually a little more objectively. Now, in a situation where I have somebody who like really did have a horrible experience in counseling, then I'll just be like, dude, that sucks. I can't believe that counselor said that to you. I'll be like, I will never say that to you. <laughs> One time I saw this teenage boy who came to see me like for an outpatient counseling session and he, his dad brought him in and he did not want to be there. But I'm like, whatever. That's all y'all people that come see me. So I'm talking to him and he's just looking at me like, what? So I'm asking him this question. I'm telling you guys that I have you been to counseling? He's like, yeah, my dad drug me to see somebody two months ago. Some guy in Simpsonville, close to where we live. And I was like, what happened? Was it good? Like, was it helpful? What happened? And he's like, you know what that guy did? I was like, what did he do? And he said, that guy told me that, first of all, he made me stand up. And I thought that was weird. And then there was like this bathroom attached to his office. I started getting scared when he said that. I was like, oh my God, like, what is he about to say? I was nervous. So then he says that this counselor makes him stand up, walk into this bathroom that's like onto the office or whatever, and says, you see how big this bathroom is? This is how big the jail cell is that you're going to end up in. And started giving him this lecture on the first session. First time this kid had ever seen a counselor. First time this kid had ever seen this counselor. And we're talking about a teenager using drugs. That's a terrible technique. That is that whole scared straight stuff. Like I'm sure your mom and daddy done tried that on you. And if that were, you wouldn't be in the counselor's office. So I just laughed. I was like, what? And then I started like laughing. I was like, my bathroom's a little bigger. Maybe you'll get a good sale. I started like joking about it. And I said, don't worry, I'm not going to do that. And so just letting them 
tell you about that bad experience and validating that bad experience lets them take their wall down. And so when they start throwing these objections and these roadblocks, there's some validity there. Just find it and listen to them because when you listen to them, they feel safe and they feel heard. And then their walls start to come down. And then that's when they're more open to actually talking about it. Maybe even opens the suggestions, but they're at least more open-minded about having a conversation about it. But the first thing you have to do is you have to handle these objections. There's actually a, a special kind of training that counselors get. It's actually any counselor can get it, but mostly addiction counselors get it. And it, it's called motivational interviewing. It's a technique that counselors are taught on how to deal with resistance. Even though in the counselor world, they don't even want us to call it resistance. <laughs> counselors are so cheesy sometimes. They, they get on my nerves too. That's what I tell the counselors. Counselors get on my nerves. When I go to these conferences and I'm around other ones, I'm like, oh my God, I don't blame y'all. So they don't like the word they use resistance because that's negative. But that's what it is. The, the client is resistant to going to see the counselor. And so they teach you these techniques for how to deal with that resistance. And basically what they teach you is you... They, the term is roll with the resistance. Don't fight against the resistance. That technique teaches you how to be like neutral and ask questions in a certain way to pull out certain other pieces of information and then emphasize that. For example, a question, they have these, they call them scaling questions in this technique. And they'll say, on a scale of one to 10, how badly do you need to change or how motivated are you are to change or whatever. And they might say three and you might be thinking, a three, you're about to go to prison. You might be thinking that, but you're not going to say that because you watch these videos. I know you're not going to say that. <laughs> and when they say that, you say, really? Why a three and not a two? And the reason you say it that way is because when you compare whatever number they give you, if they give you a one, we'll say, why a one and not a zero? Because then they're going to give you some reason why they need to change. It's a question that prompts some kind of reason and motivation. And then when they give you that, you can ask more. Now, that's a whole technique. We teach it inside of our invisible intervention. And also, you can actually see me do a motivational interviewing session, like a whole session for free if you want to get a feel for how that works. But it's this great set of techniques that teaches you how to find the positive things that makes the person want to change and like pull them out and magnify them up and sort of like dismiss this other talk. Because everybody that's in this situation has some ambivalence. You have some ambivalence about trying these techniques. Everybody, it's just natural, right? So you have part of you that says yes and part of you that says no. And so trying to fight with this part of someone that says no is ridiculous. It's just going to make them want to defend that stance. And so what you have to do is you have to learn to pull their motivation out. And almost everyone I've seen has some motivations for change. Like even if they come in the office and they tell me, I'm just doing this because my wife wants me to do this. Then I say something like, dude, you must be a good husband. You must love your wife a lot. Like she must be something special to do this. And then they'll tell me about something they care about. When I want to get a divorce. That'd be bad for my kids. Tell me about your kids. Obviously you care about your kids. You're willing to do whatever it takes. And so whatever they give you, you find the good piece in that and you start pulling it out. And when you do that, you find that they do have a desire to change. Yes, they have some desire to say the same and some fear. They've got both sides. And there are ways to pull 
forwards. Now that you have some techniques, some ways to talk to your loved one about going to counseling, if you know that they're not quite ready to change and you've barely got them talked into going to counseling, then look for somebody who's trained in this technique, motivational interviewing. You know, there's like addiction treatment facilities where you can go and they'll say, get a sponsor, go to 12-step meetings, do this, do that, write a relapse prevention plan. All well and good. All great advice. If the person either doesn't think they have a problem or doesn't want to change that problem, you're wasting your breath on that. So there's a whole different set of techniques and skills that have to be used with someone who's either in denial or maybe on the fence. You're going to have to address the motivation piece before you start telling someone how to solve a problem because they don't want to solve it. If they don't even think they have a problem, they're just looking at you like you're crazy. And then you got one more time that they got in their back. Like I tried that, it didn't work. Now you've got one more bad experience in the backpack here so that they carry around and, and use as a reason to not try it again. So timing is very important when it comes to these things. And I talked about this some when we talked about denial and different kinds of denial, but the the word treatment, if you're going to avoid any one word, it's probably that word because that's the scariest word. Like people may really not want to do counseling and think it's dumb or something like that. A lot of times they'll just do it to make you happy, which is totally fine. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> that works too. And I'm telling you that because I've been doing this 20 years and literally almost everyone I've seen comes in reluctantly. They don't really want to. They're doing it because they had to for some reason. Now, these days I get more people that come in because they want to, but that's because you guys are doing such a good job of setting the right stage. But historically, people come in and that's fine. So you have to figure out where they're at in that process. If your person doesn't think they have a problem, then don't, not only should you not say the word treatment because it's going to make them shut down, but it's treatment like going inpatient. That's really expensive. It's a waste of time unless you have the right stage. They either have to be somewhat ready. That doesn't mean they want it. You guys know how I feel about that. But they have to be somewhat motivated to do something, even if that's an external reason. Or they have to be in some kind of position where they have to do it. And I'm cool with have to do it too. Have to do it or I'm going to go to jail. Have to do it is fine because that will keep somebody involved long enough to get sober long enough that their brain will clear or motivated enough. One or the other has to be in place. And I would definitely make sure you wait for the right timing before you go and spend a ton of money on treatment. Timing is important. So if we're not ready for that, maybe we can get them ready to talk to a counselor. Or if they're not ready for that, maybe we can get them ready to watch a video. Think about what could I maybe get this person to do to take a baby step in the right direction. This video is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp has more than 20,000 therapists worldwide, which is one of the things that makes them so easily accessible. That is honestly my favorite thing about BetterHelp, is that you can get access to the help when you actually need it. You guys know that I talk about getting help when you're in that right moment. Timing is everything. And the last thing that you want to do is start calling around to all these different therapist practices and waiting for weeks to get a call back if you even get one. Now BetterHelp, it's not a crisis line. It's not a hotline. It's real professional therapy done securely online. It's so easy to set up an account. All you have to do is go to betterhelp.com backslash put the shovel down. Don't forget to use that link to get an extra 10% off. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P backslash put the shovel down. All right, we got questions. Amber says, 
I'm here and emotionally exhausted. I feel so overwhelmed and just completely done. Why can't he just see his addictions make things worse? It's crazy. I've been doing this 20 years, and every time I see denial in somebody that's so obvious, it's mind-blowing every single time. just like, really? Even though I have 100 videos on here where I explain it to you, even though I get it intellectually, just as a person, it's like, you really can't see? That's a problem? Like, they really can't. It's crazy, and it is exhausting and overwhelming. And so if you need to take a step back, you take a step back. Not that, I mean, if you need to like literally get away from this person, you get away from them, but at least emotionally take a step back. I'm telling you guys all these things to do, but I always feel so guilty because you don't have to do these things. You do these things when you're ready and when you want to, because it's not always the best thing for you to do. It's totally fine to, to take care of you too. Jennifer, how do I convince him that I'm not the one that can help him? He thinks I can help him do anything, but I am his partner, and it just doesn't work like that. He isn't accountable to me. I've seen that a lot, Jennifer, and that actually, I'm not sure 100% what's happening in your situation. So they pull on your heartstrings, and so sometimes they're doing it like that. And then other times they really do expect you to, like detox them. Campbell deals with that a lot. Like parents who've literally went over and helped their adult child detox multiple times. It's like, what are you doing? Or they'll say things like, well, you just hold my medicine for me. The thing I would say about it, Jennifer, is, dude, that's not fair. You can't put that on me. I'm here to be your girlfriend, your wife, your mom, your sister. I'm not here to be the police, the probation officer to do that. And that's not fair for our relationship. That's what I would say, because it's truly not. When they ask you to, to make them act right, they end up resenting you for it. It's just a no-win situation, and it's crummy, just like what Jennifer's saying, 100%. Jan says, my son is supposed to see a peer recovery counselor. Right now, his appointment was 1.30, and it's 1.23. I woke him up two times. Is that enabling? He's not ready. It takes a 20-minute drive to the place. Does this mean he doesn't really want to go or is in the action stage? It definitely could mean that. <laughs> that could be a sign of resistance for sure. I might would remind him once, but I wouldn't keep pushing the, the topic. If it's a peer recovery specialist, I'm not sure if it's something that he's paying for or you're paying for. Sometimes if it's a counseling appointment, I'll suggest that the family say, we'll pay for all the ones you go to. Because a lot of times if it's counseling and you don't show up, like you have to pay anyway if you don't like cancel in time. You just no-show the appointment. And so we, a lot of times if like a parent or something's paying, then I, we tell them, say, tell pay for every appointment that they go to. And if they can't go to, they have to cancel in time. And I think that's totally fair. So I'm not sure if, if there's money involved in this, but if there is, you might could leverage that at some point. LAC says, my husband has seen a counselor three times. I asked him yesterday how it was, and he said he hates it. He's been getting better, but he's not saying he's never going to do it again. He's really introverted and doesn't like talking anyways. How should I take it? Should I just wait it out and see if he's willing to continue? I'm glad you gave me this example. This is a great example of like, they're giving you something negative and they're resisting something. And this is where you want to roll with it. You can say, I bet it is where you're talking to some stranger about your business. What's it like? What's that person like? Be curious and interested in a casual way and not in a serious way and don't give him any kind of lecture about how it's good for him or anything like that and say, I bet it is weird. <laughs> and say, what's he like? What's his office like? What does he make you talk about? In a curious way, if your loved one can tolerate it, that's what I would do. That's how I would handle it. Beva says, 
Does all this advice and techniques help with someone who has struggled with a trauma bond? Yeah, these are just techniques that help people overcome their roadblocks and resilience. So yeah, I would say so. These techniques won't work on everyone, but these work on a lot of people on the really common objections. What if he doesn't want to share his private thoughts and feelings with a stranger? That goes, that's similar to that last question that we had about the introvert. That's understandable, but you can say, you, so if you don't, a lot of times people will be more okay sharing their thoughts than their feelings and especially men. So in count, sometimes I'm talking to a guy, which is most of the time I'll say, what do you think about that? And they'll give you an answer that will explain to you how they feel. So you can use words that are, that are less touchy feely or whatever. And they'll usually tell you what they think about that. And if your person is say, well, I'll just go in there and fill them out. You don't have to tell them anything if you don't want to tell them as much as you want to or not. Just see what you think about them. So that's a, that's another example of roll with the resistance. Don't fight against it. Agree with it and give them that space where they know they're not being forced into it. And they know there's an exit door because a lot of times if they just know there's an exit door, they'll do it because they know they're safe. They know that they can run out if they want to. I literally tell that sometimes to people that come in our office. This is a funny thing in our office. We're in this old house downtown. This house is really old. It was cute. And that's why we like it. But it's so old, like all the doors are janky and they like swell up with the weather and they get skinny and they do all this funny stuff. And so inside of my office, the door like literally won't stay shut. And so I had to put like it won't it just won't latch and so inside the door I had to put like one of those hook latch locks and so when clients come in like they come in and then I like lock them in and it's so weird and I say listen I'm locking this door it's not weird you can totally open it and run out if you want to I literally say you can run out of here screaming if you want to <laughs> because it's like weird it's like I'm coming in and then the lock goes down but that's the only way the door stays closed CCV how do you find a sober coach do you need to be trained in a treatment program to get a referral for a coach rather than a counselor? That's a good question. Sober coaches are a newer thing, and so they're not everywhere, but there's like more and more people being trained in it. Like there's NADAC, which is National Alcohol, Drug and Alcohol Abuse Counselors. It's like the big national organization that does addiction counseling. They train people as peer support specialists. Like somebody else said their person was seeing a peer support specialist. That's the same kind of thing. So you can find more and more of them in your like area. And you can even look it up. Somebody came, knocked on our door. Me and Brie were at lunch the other day and somebody just came, knocked on the door and they were like, Hey, I'm a new, I just got trained as a recovery coach. I'm just like putting my resume out there. So there's more and more of them. But usually people that do that are people that are in recovery that have, they're not just like an AA sponsor because they do actually have some training and stuff like that to help people, not as much as a counselor. Now, Kim and Campbell and I call ourselves recovery coaches. We are trained counselors, but what we do these days is more like advice and coaching. And it's not like deep counseling, get into your childhood trauma, talk about your dream stuff. It's more coaching. So we, we call it coaching. We're counselors, but most people that do that are like people in recovery. But I think they're super helpful. And that sounds less intimidating and scary than counselors sometimes. So it's a good way to go. Irma says, word of advice. My son is going into rehab program tomorrow, but he says he decided that he doesn't want to have communication with me throughout the program. He'll be doing rehab for a year. What do I do? I don't understand why he would not want to communicate with me every now and then. 
He said that it's okay if I communicate with the person in charge, but not with him. That's interesting. I don't, I could guesstimate some reasons why that could be. Because I would think my first thought when you said that Irma was, is that he doesn't want you to talk to the treatment people. He doesn't want to put you on the release of information because he doesn't want you telling them all his stuff. And he doesn't want them telling you all his stuff, which is normal. My, so if it's not that reason, it sounds like it's not if he's saying you can talk to the person in charge, then there's some kind of hurt feeling. There's some kind of he perceives boundary issue. There's something about the nature of the relationship that I don't know, that's upsetting him. I'm not sure what. And maybe he's just mad. I don't know if you're the one that's pushed him into doing it. And maybe that's why he's mad. And if that's the case, he'll just get over it. It may be a while, but he'll get over it. Tara says, hey, Amber, the excuse I get is the counselor doesn't know me. How do they know my problems, et cetera? How could they possibly help? That's a good question. And the role of a counselor is to get to know you. When I have clients, what I say is, I say, listen, I know a lot about like this and that, but I don't know a thing about you. So we're going to figure this out together. You, I know this, we're going to put our heads together. I don't know if your person's ever done counseling before, but it's not like you walk in, sit down and they say, all right, let me tell you what to do. Do this, this, this. If they do, they're not a good counselor. So what they do is they get to know you and understand you. And that's the only way that counseling works because anybody can throw advice out there, but if they think you don't get them, then that it wouldn't make any sense. Scarlett, my son is in Buffalo Alley right now. His second ex-wife has a degree in psychology and thinks she knows it all. In her words, she's a professional, but she's a narcissist. She puts my son down repeated, repeatedly. Is that what it's probably just dropped off there at the end? I don't know if my son wants to be with her for the third time, but she is blocking me from talking with my son. Okay, this is, so this is the one I saw earlier, Brie, that you put up there that I said there's more to that story. I knew there was more to that story. Yeah, something is going on with that because your son would be in charge of whether or not he would talk to you or the treatment people would talk to you. So there's something going on between the two of them. And, and I don't know, obviously, I don't know anything about this situation, but the one thing I would tell you is that it is very common that when someone has an addiction, they split everybody against each other. I don't know if it's happening in your case, but it is very common that they split like the parent against the wife or the parent against the husband. And they'll say things like, they treat me terrible. They're controlling. They're mean. They're narcissists. They're all this and that and the other. And that's because the spouse knows what's up. That's because they're living with you and they know what you're doing and they're angry about it. Spouses are angry. Parents are desperate. But think about what you want differently from your spouse than what you expect from your kid. It's a different ball game, And so I don't know if that's what's going on here, if it's that kind of splitting dynamic where he's telling the wife certain things about you, telling you certain things about the wife, or if it really is this kind of situation. But either way, he's the ringleader. He's in the middle of it. He's the one that really pulls the strings. Husband is, I'm guessing that's functioning alcoholic. We have a special dinner with my 24-year-old daughter and her boyfriend tomorrow. Is it okay to ask my husband beforehand not to drink at dinner? I don't know if you ever ask him not to drink at dinner before. How does he respond? So there's two pieces of it. There's a, how's he going to take it? Is it just going to make him defensive? And then there's the other piece of, is it going to work? It's not going to work either which way. If you ask him not to drink at dinner, he might not drink at dinner, but he might drink a lot before dinner, especially if he needs to drink in the evening. I'm not sure how well that'll work, but what you 
if you, what you can do is get an exit plan or something. And I don't know how much your daughter knows or doesn't know about it, but if things start sliding south, you can just figure out how to tidy it up and finish it up. And because the big thing here is protect your daughter mostly because she'll just be humiliated, embarrassed. And I'm thinking, right? so you can run interference, but that's a tough one. You can ask them. It might work. It might offend them. It might start an argument and he might would say yes, but do it anyway. So it's kiffy. Do you have any experience or knowledge with accelerated resolution therapy for addiction so they wouldn't have to talk? We actually did two videos on this recently, Crystal. The first video we did on this, and it was one of the live videos probably two months ago, I want to say, talked to this guy who's like an addictionologist doctor down in Florida who does that kind of training. And he does it because he had it done on him. And so he has a really interesting take on it. You can hear from him. And the second video we did on this we actually had the lady that invented it on here to talk about it so it's really cool and she talks about how it can be used for addiction therapy but yeah definitely if people don't want to talk that's one way to go at it the daily fire my son who lives in another state has finally said the words i'm addicted in reference to his excessive life destroying pot use what can i do from a distance to help if you the the best thing you can do is keep a good relationship with your son. And if he told you, hey, I think I'm addicted, then there's some level of trust there. And so when they finally say something like that, if you're like me, my instinct is to pounce. I literally have to like, in my head, I have to think, steady. I'm like, yeah. And I say, like, okay, you should do this and this and this. But you have to hold that back because if they just said it, they're probably nervous about saying it. They definitely don't want to say it out loud because they don't want to be forced into anything. So you just act real cool, calm, and casual. And you say, what's making you say that? Just be curious about it and let them be in control of the gas pedal. Thanks for listening to our audio. But did you know these episodes are recorded live on YouTube? Join us Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern to participate in the discussion, ask questions, give and get feedback. Any featured links discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes. And lastly, my goal is to spread recovery faster than addiction is spreading, and I can't do it alone. You can help support my mission by leaving a review for this podcast or sharing it with a friend.